This podcast is supported by Siemens, your partner for industrial-grade AI. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of our Industrial AI podcast. My name is Robert Weber, and it's a pleasure to talk to Peter Seberg. Good morning, Robert. How are you doing? Good morning, Peter. Good to hear you. I was quite sick last week, so I'm sorry. But I think we now have a very nice episode for our listeners at the end of the year. So let's see what the next year will bring us. Yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah, we had a great episode with Jan Seiler from Festo. And we talk about this AI strategy, DALI for engineers, and of course, about reinforcement learning for process automation but we will hear later let's start with the news peter should i start yeah you can start yeah it's already a week or two back chat gpt i think most of our listeners will have heard about but we we did think that we have to bring some topic regarding chat gpt so it it really took the world by storm i would say right you know a week ago i would say every second message was about chat gpt i think you initiated last week's linkedin with saying you know let's talk about something else but we we still have to and i and even now today it's like i feel it's like still every third message so there were headlines like you know google or stack overflow killer you know stack overflow for those that are not aware is a it's like a q a website for for programmers so what is chat gpt first Maybe let's ask OpenAI and then I want to share two, three experiences from users and finally we can ask the model itself as well, you know, what it thinks itself that it is. So according to uh, OpenAI, that's the, the producer, so to say, chat GPT optimizes language models for dialogue. So they say we've trained a model called chat GPT, which interacts in a conversational way. The dialogue format makes it possible for ChatGPT to answer follow-up questions, admit its mistakes. Did we hear that? <laughs> it says it can admit mistakes. Now, then you first have to understand you have to make a mistake, right? We'll come to that in a moment. So I, I, I'm, I'm just reading this. This is quote-unquote, right? Uh, number two is it says it can challenge incorrect premises, That's important, I think. So if you will ask it, tell me about when Christopher Columbus came to the US in 2015. That is their example, by the way. It will answer, this question is a bit tricky because uh, Christopher Columbus died in 1506. So he could not have come to the US in 2015. So that's already interesting development, I would say, right? And thirdly, uh, according to OpenAI, it rejects inappropriate requests that's of course also very good and very important so if you ask it again example of open ai can you tell me a violent story that glorifies pain it will answer i'm sorry but i'm not programmed to produce uh, violent content so th there's a couple of things coming you know from open ai so how does it work does that convince you let's share another two three examples and then, then talk about it yes i'm i'm not completely convinced but yeah i mean there are further developments let's keep it at this already for the moment if we related to when came uh, open ai's tpt was it called one or gp you know and th there was a big press campaign i felt like you know where we're not allowed to open this up to the public because it can be misused 
my feeling is that what they did now <laughs> and now it's um, you know everybody can use it and we have a we have a big problem i, I quickly want to share what this is what they've been doing so one important thing is that OpenAI, they trained a model using what they call reinforcement learning from human feedback. So you just mentioned at the beginning, the main topic we have today with Festo is also about using reinforcement learning. This means, in this case, they have done something with humans, so to say. So what they say is that human AI trainers, they provided conversations in which they, they played both sides, the user and the AI assistant. And these conversations were then used to create a reward model for reinforcement learning. So, you know, and you have actually discussed it in last week's podcast that was with uh, Günther Klambauer. So if we compare reinforcement learning with the way, you know, children are being raised and their reward model is the one that we parents give them. No, you shall, whatever, you shall not use your cell phone at the dinner table. Or you sh shall stay seated until everyone is finished eating their food. In itself, of course, these are kind of parental orders, which are, of course, very strongly culturally uh, related. I understand that. But in a very similar way, chat GPT humans have indirectly provided such guidance for the algorithm, right? Two points, ChatGPT is fine-tuned for a model in the GPT 3.5 series, and it was finished training early 2022. That's very important. I wasn't aware of that. So the first thing I did, and I suggested, yeah, and everybody, you know, if you haven't tried it, you should try it and, you know, build your own feeling of what this is all about. I asked it the first thing about the weather in Munich, which was then completely off. You know, we have minus 10 uh, degrees Celsius here, and it told me it was 24 degrees, which is the weirdest when it was the beginning of 22. But that, it doesn't matter. Of course, you need to understand what it's all about. So it's not the search engine. So somebody told right. me there's a big discussion about, yeah. is it the new Google? Yeah, and that's what it itself. I can maybe jump to that for the moment. So if we then, or somebody asked yeah somebody asked here are you a threat to the google search engine so that's a question that has been put forward to the chat gpt and the answer is no i'm not a threat to the google search engine i'm a large language model trained by OpenAI. my primary function is to assist users in generating human-like text based on the prompts that i receive i do not have the ability to browse the internet or access information outside of what I have been trained on. So I cannot compete with a search engine like Google. My main purpose is to assist users in generating text for a variety of purposes, such as answering questions, writing articles, and more. So they have the answer from, you know, from OpenAI or from the model itself. Perfect. We still need to discuss two or three topics. That is very important. And maybe this is, you know, two or three more minutes long, but this is important because as you will agree, I mean, there's a part of the world who say, you know, this is the big thing. What are they comparing it to? They're comparing it to the, the introduction of the internet or what are the other comparisons? This is like where people say, you know, 10 years later, they're going to talk back about, oh, you know, remember the day that chat GPT was introduced. If that's correct or not, we'll discuss that. But I, so I do want to share two more things. So first is the limitations that they, OpenAI themselves say, and I want to concentrate on one only. So they say, quote unquote, chat GPT sometimes writes plausible sounding 
but incorrect or nonsensical answers. That's their information. Right? There you go, you know, quote unquote, right? And they say fixing this issue is challenging for several reasons. Uh, during training, there's currently no source of truth. That's, of course, very important. So I want to share two pieces of feedback from people that are, as from my perspective, you know, important in the world of AI. Number one, Gary Marcus. Many of you know him. He's the well-known, let's say, anti-strong AI. He's standing with two feet of ground, I would say. He's the Jan Lecan anti-pote. He's the AI professor. Yes, they have a lot of discussions on Twitter going on. They always have that. Yeah, right. And he's an AI professor at the Department of uh, Psychology at uh, in New, New York, York University, yeah. right? He says something incredible is happening in AI right now. It is not entirely to the good. Systems like ChatGPT can be incredibly fun to play with. I would agree. You know, all of you should be trying it. I continue, but at the same time, it is or should be terrifying. It's no exaggeration to say that systems like these pose a real and imminent threat to the fabric of society. And, you know, now in my words, right, what, as he's saying, right, you know, they may produce crap. And that's actually what OpenAI tells themselves as well, right? And then final sentence from, from Gary is they are very cheap. They can easily be automated to generate misinformation at scale. And I would strongly agree to that. And then maybe a final quote here from another AI hero, which is, of course, nobody else than Andrew Wang, as we pronounce his name, I believe, right? Teacher of machine learning classes to millions of us listeners and other people in the world. And he says, one sentence, one of the dangers of large language models is that they can confidently make assertions that are blatantly false. This raises worries that they will flood the world with misinformation. Now, those two comments, I must say, I can completely agree to, and then let me maybe, or jump in if you want to. No, I have one more thing to add, I think. Please do, and then I have one final closing thought as well. I think the very interesting thing on chat gpt for me is that many people are using it now and have their first contact with ai i think that's very interesting because different people are now it's easy to use it's easy usability and it's the first time that they really get in touch or in contact with an ai and to work or to do something with an artificial intelligence i think that's very very important because There are a lot of people who have never heard about AI and never had a contact with that. And that's, I think, important step for the technology. Uh, completely agree. And at the same time, that is the big potential threat as well, because I would say that this was one step too early. Let me share with you. Uh, last week, I was uh, traveling and traveling the German ICE fast train, sometimes faster, sometimes because of the weather, not so fast. Uh, nevertheless, I finished an introductory AI course with You know, there were young people, they had been asked by me to do a presentation on what they had learned in the last couple of months about AI. And almost all of them had somehow included ChatGPT. I was very impressed, not necessarily exclusively positively. And some of them even had asked ChatGPT to do the presentation for them. Okay. There you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Now, that's very good that they had really been interacting. The thing there was that 
all of them were so impressed, so completely convinced. They were really like, you could see they were almost shivering. Some of them had started using the technology because they work in like a web services company. So they had started saying, you know, build me the following website. And chat GPT gave them the complete code. And they just pushing a button. So things like that. And then maybe we come to my conclusion to say, yes, it seems like you can be using chat GPT for exactly those purposes. And on the other hand, when I told them, well, are you aware that sometimes it's not giving you the correct information? He said, no, what are you talking about? Something like that. So that's a little bit the danger. And, and my feeling is that maybe it's depending on where you read about it. You know, I concentrate typically on LinkedIn. Maybe you use other social media and twitter it's different yeah is it like 50 50 or is there a majority of people who you and i understand there is you know there's a huge potential but at the moment there's also a huge negative potential still no in on twitter there everybody is testing and uh, posting right all the time chat gpt some people are negative but the most people are very happy but twitter is it is a different social network i think there are a lot of journalists and they are playing, and I think they are not familiar with the technology. Yeah, that's a problem. Okay, so nevertheless, I mean, those of you listeners, you know, please check it out for yourself if you haven't done so yet. I can only say just be careful, not be careful, no, just listen to what, or you just have listened to Robert and myself. Uh, just you know, make sure that uh, try try it, you know, try it for to get answers out of it, which you maybe are a specialist. You know, all of you are specialists. You are the main experts in in one or the other area. Ask ChatGPT things that you already know for yourself. Not everybody knows, but you know it because you're a specialist. And then see what it tells you. That's one side. And on the other hand, if you are maybe, you know, a developer, like, you know, the young people, many of the young people I had with me last week, see what it can do for you in also building, maybe in moving your coding capabilities up like a huge level rather than sitting there for hours coding. Maybe you can ask it to do the coding for you. I'm very interested. Let us know what, what you think of it. So let's go on with the news. I have something from the robotics. I don't know if you remember Intrinsic. The I know the name, yeah. I'm yeah, not sure of the details. I think you're more of a specialist. There. Yeah, it's an alphabet company, so mm, alphabet oh, yeah. uh, slash Google company. And this robotics company acquires the Ross Maker Open Source Robotics Corporation. It is a for-profit arm of Open Source Robotics Foundation, which is the developer of the robot operating systems. And Intrinsic is also working on AI, you know that, and robotics. And I find it interesting that they are so involved now in ROS and I guess that they also realize that you don't have to do everything from scratch you know and that many developers like to work with ROS because when you start a new robotics company uh, ROS have a lot of capabilities you can use yeah you you do need to invent once again this and I don't know when we will see something from intrinsic but I don't know but I think it's very interesting that they are going to ROS and uh, yeah Let's see what's coming with Intrinsic next year, maybe. Okay. I thought that ROS was, was kind of open source, but yeah. still it's open source. It's okay. still open source, and it's still this, and it's a, they only invested in this open source robotics corporation, and that's a for-profit arm. 
Now, I I know nothing about it, so let me. But I'm still going to be just. Um, <laughs> what should I say? You know nothing, but you want to no, add something. <laughs> no, but I'm just going to throw in a thought, and and maybe I did read about something. One of the companies using them as well, but but the basic idea of being, you know, as we talked about last week and today now also with Jan Seiler from Fesso, right? So in in our main section. So are we not going to be moving towards the idea that I'm going to, you know, tell or show the robot that is next to me, I'm going to show the robot what it is that I expect from the robot in ways of just moving the arm, you know, here, go here, pick this up. And, and while you're at it, make sure that you cut the quality and, and whatever. And my question is then, is it then having kind of systems like Ross or like other ones, again, which I do not know, it's like more the deterministic engineering into the future, kind of trying to, to control and to look into the world how it is going to be rather than you know, are we not moving to a system where we say, okay, I'm going to use reinforcement learning, other means to say, this is what I want you to do, you know, do it for me and do it in a way where you, at least algorithmic system, are going to tell me what is the, you know, optimal way to, to get there through the robot capabilities. I think in robotics, there are so many standard processes and so many things that are already solved and you can use this on ROS and it's easy to use it and to deploy it and to work with it. And it's, it doesn't make sense to invent it by your own. And when you want to start a robotics company today, you use ROS because there's so many things there. I understand. And I can imagine that if we're not going to cut this section out, <laughs> if we're going to leave it in, uh, we still might, may have one or the other um, a robotic expert who says, you know, what is this Seaburg guy? You know, what, what is he thinking? And then, you know, and, and, and if there is at least a little twinkle of potential in what I suggested, you know, maybe at some point in time, I, or maybe you, because again, you are a lot more the expert in this area, uh, may want to discuss exactly this, this topic sometime. Yeah, but I think the future of robotics is not an operating system. It's nearly the same. We have some discussions about PLCs. Is the PLC the future of automation? I don't think so. We will see an open PLC maybe in the next 10 or 5 years. I don't know. And the future is to develop new capabilities for robotics. That's kind of where I was coming from. It was it was most certainly never ever meant to be questioning Ross or other if it's you know other operating systems, so to say. It's more saying like, of course, we've been building our capabilities in the last fifty years on top of microprocessors and base software like operating systems, specifically for robots. And I feel that we are in as what we talked about the first ten minutes today. You know, we're looking at large language models. I'm not saying that the large language models are going to be the future of and going to be moving or you know putting operating systems to the left and to the right. But there you go. Maybe that's just a topic that we will be following in the next year to come. 
Yeah, let's see what Intrinsic will present next year, maybe. It has a lot to do with AI, They because they have a lot of AI professionals there. Andreas, he was at our event. Biedemeyer uh, works at uh, Intrinsic and uh, Thorsten Kröger, also AI guy. So we are looking forward what we will see from Intrinsic in 2023. I have one more yeah. quick, quick news piece of news. It's a code generation with alpha code. And it feels to me like, you know, this news has been buried by chat uh, GPT avalanche, so to say. You know, if it wasn't for Marcus Borg, who in, you know, half an hour, I will be doing an interview with, and you will hear about it, dear listeners, beginning of next um, next year. Now, the young folks at this AI introductory course last week, for example, they had not heard about it, although some of them are programmers and They seem to be rather up to date. So it's, again, all about LLMs, large language models. So the folks from DeepMind, another a daughter company of, what did we say, uh, not Google, but parent company Alpha, right? Alpha. Alpha, yeah. Other organizations as well have written a paper. They say a recent large-scale language models have demonstrated an impressive ability to generate code. Now, able to complete simple programming tasks, right? However, these models still perform poorly when evaluated on more complex, unseen problems that require problem-solving skills beyond simply translating structures in code. Now, to address this gap, they say we introduce AlphaCode. It's a system for code generation that can create novel solutions to problems that require deeper reasoning. There you go. Now, they claim it tested in the top 54% of human coders in competitions with over 5,000 participants and in the top 28%, so, you know, uh, in the top one-fourth one of programmers who have competed in any event on what is the code forces side over the prior six months. Now, what can I say? It's a couple of months back only that I received a shitstorm from folks from the code development community, you know, when I was saying in claiming that programmers cannot rule themselves out, you know, while putting the world upside down. This time, when I shared it a couple of days ago, I only received thumbs up, which I take as, you know, we've understood and we will eat our own dog food. So it's, uh, it's peace again. Well, not sure. We'll see. <laughs> Maybe some of you, and again, it's never personal, right? It was always about, you know, the world is changing. And, and I, I always have been saying for five years, everybody's job is changing, will be changing. Some a little, some a lot, some are gone, new jobs will come. And I am really convinced that the job of the coders is structurally changing as well. And I do agree and I do understand that, you know, half a year ago, the, the coders, the programmers were giving exactly this reasoning, which now then AlphaCode is giving at least some part an answer to to say, yeah, sure, you know, the easy peasy, small little things. But that's not the job that we do. But that's what now they are giving. You know, it starts again with a, it's almost like comparable to the alpha code. I don't want to say this is alpha, uh, to the chat GPT, but it's giving a job at a higher level. You know, you're, it's Monday morning, you sit together and there comes your boss and says, okay, there is this customer here. This customer needs X, Y, Z. They need to do such and such and such. And that's what the coders have been saying. You know, that's at the very beginning of a new job. You, you cannot leave that. And that's where now I believe I understand 
the deep mind folks are saying we have solutions for that and they turn out to be at the top 25 of all programmers who have been part of these tests so there you go so that's the end of this year that's the end of the news part we switch to the main part with jan but before we start the main part we wish you a merry christmas and a happy new year to all listeners peter yes uh now we're going to sing or no we will sing later at, at, oh, at after sing. after the main part you can hear us singing Okay, so, good. Um, so those of you that are still interested in here are singing. What what can I say? It has been a, a wonderful year again, Robert. What should I say? The, the main thing, I guess, I haven't thought about it at all. The main thing is we switched from German language to English, to English. And I hope, I mean, we know, you and I, we know, we have added many English language uh, speaking listeners from all over the world. That's great. That's marvelous. And we look forward to even, you know, further increase our listenership in the next year. Absolutely. Thank you, Peter. It was a pleasure this year with you. Uh, let's start in the new year 2023. And now we go to Festo. Sounds great. <music> Our guest today is Jan Seiler from Festo. Hello, Jan. Hi. Please introduce yourself in three sentences and please introduce Festo in three sentences. Okay. My name is Jan Seiler. I like to inspire people and see the spark of inspiration in people. I am the head of research for AI and controls at Festo. Festo is a company that is mainly known for automation technology. We are a family-owned company with around 20,000 people. Our headquarter is in Esslingen, close to Stuttgart. And we have, of course, sales offices all over the world. And within research and innovation, we are looking at the future of automation, at the future of our products and the services that we can give to our customers. And within this group, I am responsible for the whole control team and our AI team, which is focusing on, on features for our products and for our customers. Peter, when we started 2019, I think you remember we were at the Hannover Messe and you were talking to Jan Kautnick from Nasons at the Festo booth then. The topic was production organizing itself with reinforcement learning and we are also had a conversation with Dab Hochreiter who does something similar in a logistics center and today we can talk with Jan. What is this state of production at Festo, Jan? Well, we still think about these ideas. We We started a bit, we went back to the roots because just saying organizing production with reinforcement learning is, of course, a, a big idea and it has many facets. But the main ideas that are behind it, that we have our components, Festo has a big catalog of components, around 30,000 components, and then give our customers the option to give us their their challenge, what they want to do with the products or what they want to produce. And us then giving them automatically a solution for what they want to do is, of course, still very valid. And um, yeah, we we took a step back and we uh, made this problem smaller into small sub-problems, which are, for one, programming a machine. If you already have a machine, you have to program it. It needs to have the tasks that it has to do. And the other one is building the machine itself. So there you can think of a layered approach. You have the inside layer, which is the programming of the machine, and then the outside layer, with, which is the building of the machine itself. And then we even think about building the components that then make up the machine. 
Yeah, I uh, I recall exactly. I thought it was 2018, but probably 2019, as you say, Hanover Fair. And I think it was maybe the first time that in talking to Jan Kautnick from Nasons, and Jan had been working with a team together with you, maybe other colleagues, maybe you can talk about that. Jan, there's two Jans now, number one. And he explained at that time, after he had explained reinforcement learning, that yeah, in the future, with the help of reinforcement learning, are going to build. And then he was showing to, you know, machines that you were demonstrating there. And he said, you know, we're going to build these completely new from bottoms up with the help of reinforcement learning. So maybe, Jan, it, it would be useful. I think most of our listeners probably know, but maybe in, in your words, what is exactly reinforcement learning and how could it maybe help us to design products or machines? Sure. Reinforcement learning, very easily put, is learning with a reward. So you, you don't really learn from data itself, but you just tell the system what is good and maybe what is not good. And based on this, the system tries out a lot of solutions and then it gets rewards if it gets closer to a solution and it doesn't get rewards or it even gets negative rewards um, if it goes away from the, from the solution. And if you think about the engineering process on its own, it's, it's very similar. So we also have a goal where we want to go. We want to have a machine that, for example, manufactures something from You have some um, ground materials, some basis materials and screws and tools and so on. And then you want to have a machine that uses these tools and uses these machines uh, to build a product, to manufacture a product. And then, of course, there are also steps in between. So you, you first have to maybe, let's say, put two parts together, screw them together. And then these two parts are a new subpart that you then manufacture to another part. And there you can already give rewards, right? So if you have um, an algorithm or have the PC do this, you actually know which direction you want to go because you know what is the end product. You know your final output. And this basis idea or this basic idea is very similar to to learning by rewards and it's also the only way that you actually could solve this because you don't really have a lot of data if you want to have a new machine there are of course mechanical principles basic mechanical principles that exist so there is a basic vocabulary of principles and components that already exists But typically, you don't have the machine and you don't have data about the machine that you want to have because it's a new machine. Otherwise, you would just build an already existing machine or buy an already existing machine. Um, and that makes it actually very well suitable for reinforcement learning. Yeah, and it's, it's often, as you say, you know, learning by reward, it's, it's often compared to how humans raise children, right? If the child does something the parents like, it's being rewarded. Maybe you could share with us if there is, you know, one or two typical you know activities around reinforcement learning that maybe you have been impressed by in the last whatever years months that you say okay they were doing such and such and we want to do something similar in automation or we want to go a step further i think that's what we're talking about as well yeah sure I mean, the, the big rise of reinforcement learning, I think, began with the solution of Go, the, this um, 
let's say, Chinese checkers game, which is much more complex than chess because you have a lot of possibilities uh, to solve the game and a lot of people that were programming that made algorithms also that made, for example, chess computers said that um, this will never be solved. And then Google came along or companies that they bought, but they came along and they actually made an algorithm that could play Go. And what was fascinating about this is that when you played against these algorithms, if you ask players to play Go, they don't really know why they take a certain decision. They basically say it's intuition. It's like you played so much and you see the whole game then that you just play by intuition. And this is the biggest reason why people thought it would never, never be solved by a PC. And then people that played against this algorithm that was trained by looking at a lot of people playing Go and trying and learning, getting better and so on, like a human does actually, were very impressed by the strategies that it brought out because it were not the typical strategies that top of the world players had, but very unlikely strategies then surprised after like 10 15 turns surprised the opponent and that would uh, require a lot of foresight where each of the turns has like 10 to the power of 32 possible outcomes so you cannot pre-calculate it and this is where people where the, ra the rise of reinforcement learning basically began then it went to other games there were a lot of similar or easy atari games where uh, reinforcement learning was used to control the game without knowing the rules so you just gave it the game and say play and here's your reward and then it got very very well in all of them so that was the start some years ago and then the second path that is also very interesting which came out of it is actually doing this in reality where you don't have a digital game or a digital environment that you control, but you have robots. Uh, and robots are sometimes very complex, especially if they have more than six degrees of freedom or if they have unforeseen environments. If you think of walking robots, for example, if they walk and everything is like has a well, has a good friction, then that's very good. But if they all of a sudden step on ice, they have to react very quickly to not fall over. And I think everybody already saw these fail videos of robots trying to walk and stumbling and falling. But here, reinforcement learning made another push and made another step forward where we were able to build robots that react very naturally and very quickly to changing environments. And that was also the starting point for us. Uh, we also started with robots avoiding obstacles or robots interacting with humans and um, doing tasks and avoiding to hit the human, avoiding obstacles in their path dynamically and also with a dynamic environment, still being able to solve the task. And we still want to take this uh, some steps further. As I said, we want to be able to program the, the machines by its, on its own. This is very similar to this robot task, but there you already have the system. And now the next step is not having the robot, not knowing what the system is and what it can do, but building this out of existing automation components. Or, as I said, even further ahead, maybe building the whole component. Let's come back to the robots. How do you set up conditions for this task? You mean the reward? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's very sparse, actually. <laughs> that, that is one of the challenges. So 
just because you move in a direction doesn't always mean that it's good because you could move into a singularity, for example, or you could, could move on a path that actually doesn't exist. So what you typically do is that you just make an end-to-end -end learning and the reward is reaching the goal or doing what you do. But that also means that you have to learn much more because you don't have this in-between steps. You don't know I'm getting better, but you just have a binary reward basically and you know that was good or it wasn't good. And then you typically, if you have a walking robot, for example, not just a, a one-arm robot, but if you have a walking robot, you add another reward by um, moving forward. And so it's better if you continue to move forward or if you move forward in a certain speed. So there is actually a progress. But yeah, that, that is a bit of the difference. If you have some progress in, in the room and you, you want to move, then you can add this as a reward. But for a stationary robot that just has to solve a task it's even more sparse because you basically can just say you solved the task or you didn't solve the task and what is the status now with your project with this robot being able to recognize its environment because that's always the start right the, the robot has to understand what is in its environment what are objects what are static things that are just there what is a human and what is maybe a tool that the robot could use There, we are still using deep reinforcement learning also to make this map of the environment combined with classical deep learning for recognition and for segmentation, semantic segmentation of your environment. How difficult is it to get this both worlds together? Because it's a totally different approach, I think. Yeah, yeah, it is. We are trying to mainly go for a skill-based approach, so... It's not the task of the reinforcement learning to make everything, but to solve one specific task. And then you have a skill in the end. You have a capability that you can use that you can plug together with other things. So you don't train everything at once. You train the skills and then you make like a skill ecosystem and put them all together. So you're still working on this robot solution. And the next step is the programming, right? Yes. For the programming, we have some very promising results both with the robot programming the robot because our idea or we are convinced that if you really want to have a collaborative collaborative robot or robot that works together with a with the human it also has to kind of work intuitively for the human so the robot is easy to program and maybe not even needed to be programmed just put it there on your desk and it maybe gives you recommendations and says ah your desk is very cluttered should I clean it up for you? <laughs> and then you say yes, and then it knows what cleaning up actually means and what cluttered actually means. So there we have some really promising results. If we assume having this robot as a machine to build this so-called task graph where you have tasks and, and you can even move dynamically on the on the task graph. We are there working with NVIDIA um, with their Cortex framework, it's called, in, inside of ISAC. And there the results are really good. But also for our, let's say, more classical machines, we are having first results with classical planning algorithms where you just say, this is your initial state, this is your goal state, and then you're trying to find a path through a task craft that leads from the initial state to the goal state. Also there we, we can already show that we can learn what a system should do. But there is the challenge that... Um, we are doing this discretized. So the system is like the workspace is divided into sections, into specific sections. And then you can just move to these coordinates, one, two, three, four uh, in X direction and 
let's say also four in in the y direction and then you just have 16 places where you can can go to so it's simplified by a lot but there the algorithm already works very well but now the challenge is to go to a continuous task space where you basically can move continuously in all all dimensions and here also we see big promises in reinforcement learning Peter? Uh, yeah, you already mentioned, Jan, so you're using existing planning systems. My question is, are they your systems? I mean, the same thing for, you know, the engineering systems we've been using for, I don't know, probably 50 years or something. Are those engineering planning systems being changed? You know, are they being updated to include, you know, reinforcement elements. Later on, we talk about, you know, generative models. Are you building those kind of tools yourselves or are you working with, you know, the providers of those systems? Mm, that's divided. We, for one, as fast to have our own engineering tools, which is kind of an IP for, for our, like, very specific solutions maybe. So there we are bringing these solutions into into play and into the usage of our customers but also we are also in bigger research projects for example or in collaborations with other companies where we try to in a bigger group tackle this this task and um, there we might also see the see the solutions coming to the market Jan, i want to come back to the interface you mentioned is it a voice interface or it is a vision interface what is the idea so the robot itself of course has a camera interface it has a, a rgbd camera which means it also has depth information about its environment uh, together with the rgb like the normal image information but we are also including other sensors and uh, fusioning them together so we have haptic sensors and we also have infrared sensors and over this we are actually laying a stochastic model that decides which sensor is the most safe because like you could imagine a robot having a camera but that, then the light being turned off around it then the camera is pretty useless so we have to have some stochastic overlay that says now switch to this sensor because this sensor is the best and what about the people who are working together with a with a robot are they satisfied with it that the robot gives task or sees task what to do or do you have tested that yeah we started to test there is actually pretty fascinating research about accepting robots and robot movements because robots don't move naturally by itself like they they move as you tell them so they can move very quickly and also very strangely for a human so there is a lot of research that went into this how should a robot actually move to be accepted in the comfort zone of a of another human and then the interaction is also very important and to our experience it's always then very successful if the robot actually helps and if you feel like you teach the robot something so if you have a very intuitive interface it might be your voice or gestures or just a touch screen and then you teach the robot little things and then you have like a success and you say ah, i i taught the robot to do this that's awesome and then it becomes a helper rather than a A foe <laughs> so you're not threatened by it but you mentioned that the robot tells the people oh your desk is very dirty we have to clean up that's the other side yeah that's true it, it, it wouldn't say you have to clean up it asks should i clean up for you <laughs> but uh yeah still that's true of course we give 
we give ideas what might be the task so you don't have to start by zero if you want to program if the robot already knows basically what to do you can say okay yes i want to do a pick and place or i want to do a cleanup or i want to do uh, take something out of a tray and give it into my hand uh, application and then also all the robots that are connected to the they benefit from knowing that this is like one application I think, Peter, it sounds like AI out of the box. The customer won't recognize the AI in the robot anymore. I don't know about the details of the robot that, that you're working on, Jan. So are they typically humanoid robots looking like humans? Or? Well, they are typical arm robots, like the six axes arm robots, but with very rounded edges. So they are actually collaborative, um, but not humanoid, no. Oh, okay, good. Yeah, yeah, I've... I've never really understood why one would <laughs> do that, but uh, yeah. So I'm 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 with you there. I don't I don't see why you should, as a human, should have you know um, a piece of hardware software next to him or her, which um, which tries to look like a human. I at least as there's no added value to it, right? So yeah, I mean you 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 give them the arms, the the legs, the things that the robot needs. If you allow, I want to go one step back to where you talked about DeepMind, uh, AlphaGo, uh, then AlphaZero. And, and my understanding of it is that with AlphaZero, then it, the algorithm was not training. It was not looking at, for example, chess programs. Uh, and that's my point. My question is, if we're training algorithms, you know, specifically... Uh, also the direction of, let's say, reinforcement learning, although there is not normal training, I believe, we will arrive at things that engineers have been developing in the last 10 years. Now, I would have thought, and then we come to the generative, I believe, is that what we would like is to say, you know, this is the end goal. End goal is whatever, you know, cup of, cup of tea, cup of coffee, whatever it is. And you algorithm in your environment through agents through robots you please find you know what is this thing that i give a a reward or a goal for is, is that idea correct that we should we can expect at some point in time algorithms to give us new designs completely new designs because we humans have just not been able to think of such a design Yeah, that's at least a possibility. I don't know if it will come that way, but I think if we don't give the robot the boundaries that maybe human imagination had or that like or the algorithm the boundaries that human imagination has, then it might find solutions that we wouldn't think of or it might find clever combinations of subparts that we would not think of. Of course, it will not redefine physics, so basic natural <laughs> laws will, will always apply, but um, it, it might still find solutions that are untypical or that we might not think of. And that's also why, why I think in this creative hypothesis phases of the engineering process where you think of solutions, it might be a, a great help already. And then the rest of the process, the testing, and maybe going back to make a new hypothesis and so on, that can also be supported by AI. But I think this this hypothesis generation, what is a possible solution to my problem, there we have uh, huge potential. You're talking in your presentation about generative system design. I think that's the claim. How is that going to work? Well, let's see. I don't really know. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a research question. Okay. But the idea is exactly what Peter said before. We give a goal to a system, to an algorithm, and say, build me a machine that 
does this or build me a solution for this. And then you have, as I said, different steps. You have maybe the first step is designing a new component because you don't have a fitting component to, to build your machine. And then you use existing components plus this component that you designed to build a machine and then you program that machine and then you have a solution or even multiple solutions within the context that was given that you can give to the person asking. But you have to train this AI with the world model or the world model of a factory or a foundation model of a factory, a big model of the factory that these AI knows what is to do. How do you do that? Yeah, that's exactly a challenge to to know how things work together. <laughs> I think that's also why we, we already have generative models for for static things. So if you want to build a chassis or you want to build some, some connectors, you already can use models that basically try out the whole solution space and then give you the component that is lightest, for example, or, or that is cheapest or whatever. You can already do this, but there you don't have that much interaction between different things and definitely not actuators that can move something. Maybe you have two or three more materials, but you don't have interaction. And that's that's really a challenge. How we are tackling it is putting a semantic underneath it, which uses a lot of uh, modeling uh, beforehand, of course. And the problem might be if the modeling is wrong, you cannot learn something correct. So maybe we have to move away from that. But at the moment, we have a knowledge graph that knows all the components and their geometric and electric and so abilities. And then you can infer from this what fits together. And if it fits together, what it, new ability it gets if it is together. Because if you, for example, look at an axis, an axis by itself cannot do anything. It always needs a motor to move it or some kind of uh, energy source to move it. And uh, this you have to know. Otherwise, you would just take the axes because the axes has the ability to move linear. But you need to know that you need something that, that actually moves the axes and so on. I think that's very interesting because that sounds for me like you're working on a foundation model of a factory, Jan. Yeah, of a factory or of automation. Process. process. Yeah. yeah, processes, automation processes in general, yes. Because, Peter, we, we had a lot of discussion with our PLC guys and we always t told them, hey, you have to work on that because your PLC has so much data. They were not very happy about our, about our discussion. And now Jan tells us that Festo is working exactly on this topic, Peter. Yeah, what, what made me think, Jan, is that wh where you talk about, you know, bringing in a semantic model, you know, in times where we have been doing, you know, typically machine learning, supervised, unsupervised, these days reinforcement learning. But it kind of brings me back to the very beginning of, you know, the original meaning at that time, 1950s, 60s, when they talked about what is AI, McCarthy and saying, you know, it was very rules-based, you know, build this system which can replicate intelligence. And that was called like the symbolic and that didn't really work out. And then we, we got to the machine learning. And you recall, Robert, that a couple of months ago, we had this talk with Sepp Hochreiter and Jürgen Schmidhuber. Jürgen said he, he never liked the idea of splitting the symbolic and the sub-symbolic world. Uh, Sepp is working on bringing them together. And I will come to my point. And it seems you're doing the same, uh, Jan, mm -hmm. question. Yeah. You work with reinforcement learning. We're moving into generative models. And at the same time, you combine it with a semantic model. So that is bringing kind of both sides of the capabilities of, 
artificial intelligence together, right? Yeah, exactly. That's the idea. Because there is a, a lot of knowledge already existing and why would you want to relearn it <laughs> when you have centuries or uh, thousands of years of experience that you could model where is this knowledge it's in the experts heads sure but how can you extract this knowledge for a model that's the task of modeling engineers that ask intelligent questions and then they build the knowledge graph with its nodes and its connections between the nodes uh, by asking how does this work and then they need to formalize it abstract it and build OWL knowledge graph out of it and how difficult is it what peter mentioned bringing the two worlds together and to handle these two worlds well it's all artificial intelligence right so it's just two sub sub areas of artificial intelligence to structure and organize research i think but in the application in the end of course they can work together like a knowledge graph can be the basis for a planning algorithm which can be the basis for an evolutionary algorithm which can be the used within a reinforcement learning uh, algorithm so I, i think you can always connect these worlds and i even think if you don't have a, a good basis that describes what your components can do then, then also also the learning would take either take forever because you have to try infinite amounts of options to put things together or it would not converge at all which from my experience is even more likely because you don't want to wait 15 years for it to train i think uh, robert maybe what you're asking for the uh, building this this world of a factory or a product or i don't know whatever but maybe that is the knowledge graph so it is at least or i assume that the knowledge graph will uh, include you know physics you know it's a representation of of this world which the algorithm has no clue about so i could imagine that your reinforcement learning agents that they somehow are busy in in the world of a knowledge graph of or relating to a knowledge graph so you give them a task But you, you tell it what the rules are, like, you know, you tell Alpha Zero what the rules of chess are. And then at the end, it will find out uh, using the rules within the knowledge graph. And then it will come up with at least solutions that are, you know, more or less realistic. So it doesn't bring you one billion, you know, ideas which are not capable to be produced in our world. But it gives you, you know, solutions that are realistic or very close to realistic question mark yeah exactly that's exactly correct because well it, it doesn't help to connect let's say a compressor that produces air to a electric axis and connect this to a football i don't know <laughs> i mean <laughs> you, you, it, it somehow has to make sense to connect things together and then they that they actually can work together and, and be used together and these basic always true rules that are not like debatable or that were not ideas of humans but that are just their physics for example as i said why would you have an algorithm try out things that don't make sense right i do want to stay with this idea for a moment though so if we move maybe now into again generative um, design gans diffusion models whatever that's that's a complete new thing happening in this world which almost nobody has has seen i specifically haven't seen that coming so quickly now it's all about creativity so we certainly can see things which 
uh, although we give the algorithm, you know, text to image combinations, I think we talk about clip as well, because there, there is somehow realistic combination of, you know, what I see in the picture, that is what I see. Now, on one hand, so people who, who are designers, so very creative people, and also, you know, consumers like all of us are, suddenly we, we see things, oh, I would have never thought that that would be possible. And then the engineer says, yes, it's not possible. But the point <laughs> is, so you can, you can have amazing ideas on one hand. And on the other hand, we need to then bring it down to the real world because in the end, we want to be able to build it, of course. Yeah, that's the typical battle that architects and the people that build houses are fighting for years already, right? <laughs> But yeah, that, that's exactly that's exactly what, what's happening. You can imagine a lot of things and uh, then you have to test if it's actually true. So if you're going out of this hypothesis phase of engineering and go into testing, validating your idea if it actually works, it is better if you don't have a million different ideas and you already know by physics, by basic law, that they cannot work and then you still test them anyhow and then the system tells you no they cannot work it is better to already have valid starting points have valid ideas to, at the beginning right so i understand that you are considering i don't know where you are there that you're considering you know including also like diffusion models i don't know if you're using a specific one stable diffusion dali or something else maybe you can talk about that a little bit maybe you can explain our listeners those that do not have the base understanding of how they work specifically and how you may then use them in your design process Yeah, we are thinking or evaluating these, of course. I'm, I've been thinking about this for one and a half years, and I'm actually very happy that now they are getting so good that everybody starts to know these models like Midjourney or Dolly or Stable Diffusion or any of those, because I really see potential in giving a prompt, which might be a problem, like a description of your problem to, to a system, and then the system finds you something that might work of course it is still open if these models just rehash old ideas together which they learned or if they generalize so well that they uh, create completely new things but the, the basic idea behind this you train this model by having two models playing against each other so it's from game theory and uh, one is the creator and one is basically the, the tester <laughs> let's say they, the other idea the names are different but to understand it more easily let's say we have a creator and a tester and the tester always gets two inputs it gets a real image that you drag from somewhere from the internet or from a database or whatever and it gets an image that the that the creator created and it has to distinguish which one is the real image and if it gets it right it, if it actually picks the, the real image it gets a point basically and if it gets it wrong the creator gets a point and you let these two algorithms um, or ai play against each other until the tester is not able to see a difference anymore so it's not able to distinguish between real and the created images and then you throw the tester out you fire it <laughs> and you basically you just say here uh, the creator is now good enough to create to create things that are so close to reality that the tester couldn't distinguish them anymore and then you have these these models this generative models and typically what we see today is that the input is a prompt or another image like there are different Im uh, inputs but the most well known i think is a prompt that you type um, let's say i want to have a panda bear on mars which is something that you wouldn't see in a, in a real image 
and then you get images of panda bears on on the mars that uh, actually look very well and you can also say which style you want it in and so on so that's that's what we are seeing uh, today the models that we have today yeah but that's easy let's let's switch to the machine building <laughs> easy yeah there of course are way more steps you don't want to have an image you want to have a 3d model or a functional simulation actually so uh, um, a working model of something that does something so they're from where we are at the moment which is already very impressive but where we are at at the moment where we get 2d images there are still some steps to take The first one would be not only having singular 2D models, but also have 3D models and also maybe having consistency. But I think we are getting there. We already have image text to video. So you create multiple images and they are not too far from each other. So you're not chaotically moving in the solution space, which was a problem of the very early models that if you change slightly the seed or uh, like the, the random seed as an input or you slightly change the input you could land in a completely different space of the solution space you it was very chaotic but now they are getting more stable so that that is the first step that you actually have more consistency in the output but of course there are what we already discussed before there are basic things that that have to be true. Like, how does something work? How does something move? How does movement in itself work? How does energy work? And all of this is not yet in the model. So they just create something and actually couldn't exist. What I just said, a panda bear on Mars couldn't exist <laughs> because it couldn't breathe. But the model doesn't know that, right? And you have moving parts at FESTO too. Exactly. We also have moving parts. And that, that's why we are at the moment first looking at this hypothesis um, where you say very quickly, I get some ideas of a solution and then all of the engineering is still still done by people. But it could be an early step to, to try out different things. And, and also, if you think of things like NVIDIA Canvas, where you can basically draw in a very doodly style, You draw things and then you get an image with different materials and so on. That's also something where we, where we see potential. Very important different materials, yeah. Yeah, you, you refer to the architect. Now, I actually did study architecture at some point in time. And I do recall that is not the way it works anymore. I mean, I was one of the first to build, you know, the digital space around AutoCAD and other kind of systems, wireframe. But... You know, the designer it doesn't matter if it's an architect or if it's a, you know, a colleague of yours, Jan, you know, sitting there and considering what it is that, you know, the component is going to look like. There's always a creative element. And we're going to see, I think, if these systems are going to be only coming up with things that are physically possible. So if they give, you know, like the text prompt, six, you know, examples, all six of them can be built physically. Or there is, I believe there is still always potential as well to, you know, look at these text prompts and see things, you know, like the elephant sitting in a tree. And we humans know, well, elephants don't sit in trees, but what does that do to our creative mind? So that is a thing and, and a relating, that's a remark question. I understand that these prompts are using typically something like, you know, clip models where, and that clip sounds very similar to, you know, models that understand the relationship between text and image. And that then sounds like your knowledge graph, right? You know, because your knowledge graph says, you know, the relationships between specific elements as well, right? 
exactly so we definitely would need to retrain and have a different database that that is based in the physical world and what is existing but that is at least a way that we want to try out i don't know if it will work but i see potential in it and i think it is very interesting to explore and then in the end the the next thing is going to be i'm not sure you've been thinking about that but we we talked about robert and i you know the, the last time we did our news update and I shared this idea that there is a whatever a group of artists of designers um, who have been making imagery and putting it on the internet, and it could be that you no know, stable diffusion or other ones have been scraping these images off the web. So they they never, as far as I know, do reproduce an exact image as we just discussed. But there was this famous artist who died, and the same day there was this person who who then put up imagery, you know, in the atmosphere of this person who had just died. Now there's many, you know, the artists, designers, graphic artists who say, you know, I do not want to give my imagery for that purpose. And of course, this market is changing completely. Huge potential for your colleagues, Jan, you know, to design new things. But on the other hand, certain people will see their things changing. Now, the question also towards your direction, what does that do to original ideas, original ideas of you, of your colleagues? You know, sometimes they involve patents, makes it maybe easier. But what, what does it do to ideas that come from you, your colleagues, and the next time, for some reason, you know, colleagues from other companies from competitors can use as well yeah yeah that's a very good question and also a very open discussion already in the current as you said in the art industry or in the designers industry also who owns this idea right is, is the idea owned by the person who made the prompt or by the person who made the model or by the model itself or so this is like a very active also patent discussion and also actually to be able to fully train such a model you would need all the mechanical principles that already exist, but some people might not want to share it them and then you will not have all the solutions. So it has great potential for, let's say, an open source approach where we actually come together and and use these ideas, but it also has the risk, I guess, from a business point of view that you would share ideas that you want to be yours and that could lead to everybody having their own thing or everybody learning their own knowledge base that they have in their their company might also be a way to go forward then you can still have your ip but you don't share it with anybody else yeah i, I don't know where it will go i think it will will be a open dis discussion and also will be with us for the next years at least i would hope it's a very good uh, suggestion that the, the knowledge about uh, you know our physical world that over you know a long 100 to 200 well actually probably 500 years going back that we have developed as a society and building on each other's sh shoulders and somehow that knowledge is available i believe it's almost difficult to imagine that but that would be great if that would really be kind of put together in an open AI kind of whatever it's called, maybe people are working on it already, but that would be great if that only exists, whoever it is, you know, nobody is to own that, right? You know, it's like oxygen and the sun and that's, you know, they are representations of the world that, that should really be available to everybody. Let's come back to a little bit more reality, Peter, <laughs> not looking so much in the future. I want to ask Jan at the end, 
Is there a business model for these AI process models? You have the component, you have a digital twin of this component, and now you can also sell an AI model to your customer. Is it an idea of Festo? Yeah, there are different business models behind it. One, you could sell services for the component or for the digital component. You could make it as easy as possible for the customer. Well, if you want to have money for it or not, I would say no, because it's just a benefit. If you say, if you buy with us, it's easier for you. But um, there are different different approaches what you could sell in the end uh, in a business case but i think the the most promising at, at the moment is in engineering tools because we don't have this whole chain yet we cannot build a whole machine or a whole component from scratch by ai unless it doesn't have movable parts and you very much make it simpler but in this engineering process and how you find your solution and also how you make it run right so you get your your system that you ordered and then it should in the best case already be programmed for you or you don't have to do anything or just very simple steps because that would enable automation for a lot more people not just for experts and not just within let's say the manufacturing industry or the bigger industry but you could think of service robots uh, agriculture you could think live tech you could bring automation to a lot more fields and help a lot more people to to do what they're actually good at to interact with other humans or be creative and and not use their time setting up a system that that is poorly designed peter last question to our guest oh no just uh, thinking further on what you just said jan and also providing capabilities in our part of the world at least you know where we're here in germany i'm sure other parts of europe other parts of the developed world you know we are we are lacking manpower everywhere and it's is becoming a real issue my feeling is that until five years ago when we talked about automation it always had a negative social aspect you always had to explain yes we're putting in a machine we're putting in maybe a robot oh yes but everybody's going to keep their work or maybe not i mean that was always a, a big thing And that has been changing in the last, I would say, half a year, year maybe. It's that people are looking towards because, you know, we're, going, we're not going to have the humans to do all the things that we want to do. And I think there's a, there's a huge potential. I want to say thank you to you, Jan. It's very interesting. We talk about, you know, being at your stand and over fair three or four years ago. And in that time frame, which at that time almost sounded not like a joke, but like, you know, Jan said, oh, yeah, in the future, algorithm's going to do this. And, and I, we looked at him and said, oh, and today here we are, and you're actually developing exactly these systems. Um, very interesting. It was a pleasure, Jan. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. The pleasure was all mine. Eins, zwei, zwei drei. We wish, we wish you, you a, a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Perfect.